0: Welcome to Never Before. I'm your host, Janet Mock. I was so nervous when I entered the Rayburn House office building in Washington, D.C. It was a super overcast day, super humid, and I was about to meet a personal heroine, Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Yup, that's Auntie Maxine, bitch. Bitch. She's been in Congress for nearly three decades, representing California's 43rd Congressional District, which is centered in South Central Los Angeles, and most recently took her mantle as Auntie Maxine in the wake of the election of the 45th president. Representative Waters has not held back a single damn word of criticism against President Trump. She has called for his impeachment on the record more than any other person in Congress and has become the truth-speaking, unintimidated, life-giving political leader of the resistance, and an easy target of attack for the right. In February, Fox News host Eric Bolling compared her to Whitney Houston and advised the congresswoman to, quote, step away from the crack pipe, end quote, while former Fox News host Bill O'Reilly insulted Waters' appearance on air by calling her hair a James Brown wig, which I kind of don't see as offensive, except for the fact that he's a white guy policing a black woman's appearance. Rep Waters addresses the criticism in our conversation which goes past our scheduled half hour in her office. That's why you hear a buzzer going all the way off for the end of our time together. But like a boss, Auntie Maxine ignores the alarm and keeps slaying. We start our conversation at the very beginning in her history-making Missouri hometown. Oh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, yeah. how exciting. Thank you so much for being here.
1: You're so welcome. I'm delighted you're oh, actually, here. Or actually,
0: thank you for having us in your space. Yes, yes, yes. Which yes. you are redecorating. <laughs> what color are we choosing?
1: I don't know. It's all in the beiges, you know. <laughs> you can't do anything too extraordinary around here. But
0: Yeah, D.C. is very much, I feel like it's like navy, gray, that's right, that's black, right. that's and right. white. And that's then if it. you want a little color, maybe a little red.
1: That's it. That's it. You got it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, so I want to go back to the beginning, you know, yes. I feel like so many folks who, who know you, um, mm-hmm. in your, your new rise and yeah. new prominence, that's auntie yes. Maxine, yes. they don't understand that you came from, um, Kinloch, yes, Missouri, mm-hmm. the that's first right. African American town to that's be right. incorporated that's in right. Missouri in your state. How, right. how did that vibrant black community shape you?
1: Well, I was very young when I was there but it was a very warm uh, community where everybody knew everybody. And of course, we were accustomed to uh, black entrepreneurs uh, where we shopped, you know, at our grocery store and uh, at our bakery, our school teachers were black. And so we had a very positive image Of uh, black leadership uh, throughout our community. And uh, churches were very supportive. It was a very warm and supportive community.
0: You know, the only time I've ever read about like a black incorporated town was Eatonville, um, Florida, from Their Eyes Are Watching God, from Zornier Hurston. And and I was just like, what what would it have been like to grow up (laughs) in a place where you don't have to seek out blackness in this way of like television, like looking for, you know, figures, but you have them every day in your life as the storekeeper, the, you know, everyone around you are, Right. different representations. Of- I was in
1: uh, Detroit recently with the head of the NAACP, who also grew up in Kidlock. And uh, we reminisced about uh, Mr. Smith's corner store, where we bought pickles, and We put peppermint sticks in the middle of the pickles. We don't know why, uh, but he and I talked about that. Everybody did it, and then we had a bakery that had its own version of cheesecake, which we loved, and we've never been able to experience uh, since you know growing up in Kenlock. So it was fun. It was a Uh, lot of fun. You know, my
0: dad's from Dallas, Texas, and I would spend summers with him, and we used to pickles were huge. So those super-sized pickles, and we would put the candy now and later's in the middle. (laughs) So I feel like maybe every generation has (laughs) their little like you know. um, their That's garnishment right. <laughs> for, for their pickles. Um, you're the fifth of 13 children. That's right. I'm the third of five, and I thought I had a lot going on <laughs> in the world. And my siblings would probably describe me as the bossy one. Yes. How would your siblings describe you?
1: I was kind of a tomboy. I was an athlete. I loved school. And I participated in sports. I ran track. I played baseball. I was a swimmer and all of that. So they would kind of describe me kind of as a, a, a tomboy who like school more than anybody else, (laughs) yeah.
0: (laughs) And I'm sure I I heard, I read somewhere that in your yearbook, your high school classmates said that you'd most likely be, they predicted you to be the Speaker of the House one day. And that seems pretty- That's true,
1: isn't that something? That's like
0: a remarkable prediction for a black girl in the 1950s. That's right. right. Do you remember the first time that you used your voice in a way and you got a reaction as a young woman?
1: My mother was like this. Uh, She was very outspoken. She had no filters, really. And so I think that most of her children uh, grew up that way and was socialized uh, that way and reared that way. And so we didn't know that we were speaking out. We didn't know that that was different from, you know, the way other people are taught to react uh, to other people and to voice their opinion. And so it was quite natural for us. And I think most of us have done that all of our lives.
0: What did your mom do for a living?
1: She didn't. She um, uh, raised kids. My mother had 13 children.
0: (laughs) That's quite a living.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She She was married twice. We we were in and out of welfare between the two husbands, etc. So she never really worked. Yeah. So
0: social safety nets helped out a, a, oh, yeah. a little oh, bit sure. there, which oh, is yeah. great. Absolutely. And I'm sure you also, as a young person, you had to help out a little bit. I know that you worked in a segregated whites only restaurant That's in right. That's in right. St. Louis. How did that experience shape your political consciousness?
1: We were all eager to work when we were young. All of the kids in my neighborhood worked during the summer in various jobs. We had uh, we had some of the young people in my neighborhood who actually went to work in strawberry fields and picked strawberries during the summer in the outlying county areas. I worked at Thompson's Restaurant where I cleaned tables. It was segregated. We had to eat in the basement. Uh, But I was so happy, you know, to have the job because that's what I used to purchase all of my clothes to return to school. And so I earned money during the summer. I would identify and the clothes that I wanted to wear, and I would go and put them in the layaway, they called it. And you pay on them until you finish paying with them. And when school started in September, I had wonderful wardrobes. Uh, so I've worked all my life, but all of the children in my neighborhood worked. Everybody expected you know, to have a job and was eager to work, and, and that's what we did. Wow. Yes.
0: You know, I, I think about when I was... Um I'm sophomore in high school. I started, my first job was working at Zippy's, which is this restaurant in Hawaii. Okay. I remember the first thing that I bought for myself was like this leather jacket. It's Hawaii. <laughs> I didn't need a leather jacket, <laughs> but everyone on MTV had a leather jacket, and I was like, I'm going to pay my way through this leather jacket. Do you remember that point of of that garment for you? Oh no!
1: Look, <laughs> let me tell you. I really was into buying nice clothes. I uh, had a few friends, and we had these ideas about. Uh, you know, buying good clothes. As a matter of fact, I learned about good clothes from my mother shopping at the Goodwill. Rich people gave their clothes to the Goodwill. So you could begin to see the styling, the stitching, the buttons and all of that. And so uh, when we went to shop, uh, we shopped at a store called Sticks Baron Fuller, who sold nice clothes. And we really did choose pretty nice clothes. And uh, we worked to pay for it. And Um, we had, we had, uh, outfits that we would put together, uh, to go back to school and you didn't just have, you know, the dress or the skirt or the sweater. You had the shoes, you had the socks, you had the little purses, you had everything to go with it. So (laughs) I love that.
0: Mm -hmm. So how did you get from a small town to being politically active in your community?
1: My family, of course, moved from Kinlock to St. Louis. That's the big move. And then I married young, uh, ended up going to California, my first husband. Uh, was in, in the service. I worked all kind of jobs. I worked in uh, factories. And then I landed a job in at the telephone company. Uh, I was a operator for Pacific Telephone. And then I became a service representative. And then when the war on poverty came into being, and it talked about Head Start and having a program where young kids who families didn't have money, who came from poverty or working families, would now have an opportunity uh, to provide early childhood education in the way more wealthy families could. There, uh, That excited me and some of my friends. And so we got involved with this war on poverty and went and made applications for all kind of different jobs in the world on poverty. I ended up in Head Start. My friends ended up in other places. I started in Head Start as an assistant teacher and became supervisor of parent involvement and volunteer services where I organized parents and organizing parents to help fight for the funding for Head Start to keep it going, it brought me in touch with the politicians. And of course, I learned about which politicians were great and were supportive and which ones were not. That took me into volunteerism in campaigns for those politicians that I thought were supportive of, you know, Head Start and these programs. And the women's movement was coming into being. I got involved with NOW and NWPC and these women's organizations and my predecessor, before I ran for the California State Assembly, had gotten in some kind of trouble and he was going to leave. And it was, hey, why don't you run for that seat? You know, you've been organizing, you've been working out here in the community. And so we just kind of decided that we wanted to do it. My predecessor tried to close down any opportunities for anybody other than his assistant to run for the seat. He didn't tell anybody he was going to leave office. So I, the way I described it is at five minutes to five, he and his assistant went into the Secretary of State's office. He filed. And of course, it closed out everybody else's opportunity because filing was over, you know, at, you know on that day. And so there was a woman who was the Secretary of State. It was an Asian woman named March Fong Yu. And I had some friends who were a judge and ACLU and others that I knew. I went to them, I said, something's wrong with this picture. We went to her and she opened up the filing for another five days and I filed. And the women got behind me and we campaigned in some new and different ways. Uh, We didn't have as much money as the opposition, but at that time, uh, gardens were becoming very popular. So we uh, packaged garden seeds. And we did a penny saved is a penny earned, and we filled these packets with garden seeds. And at that time, the community was basically um, still growing Latino population, more Black population, and a kind of dying out White population. So we sent carrot seeds to the whites, we sent cilantro to the Mexicans, and collard greens to the Blacks. <laughs> 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 and when we would go, we would go knocking on doors and thought, Miss Wallace, I got my seeds, you know. <laughs> and years later, years later, because collard green stalks grow real tall with big leaves, and they stay for years. And people would tell me, you know, come see my stalk, or I'm gonna fix you some collard greens, you know, and on and on and on. So anyhow, we campaigned in new and different ways. NWPC, and now that was basically white, who came in to support me, I sent them to the white parts of the district. Mm. They campaigned, and I'll never forget this story, where my friends were over campaigning in Southgate. This was the white part of the district. And they were asking them to vote for Maxine Waters. They didn't have any pictures or anything. over there. And they said, Maxine Waters, is she a N-word? You know, and she said, no, she's a woman. And they said, okay. (laughs) That's a funny story that, you know, that became a real laugh in our campaign. So we had our whites uh, in the white community that was, they were significant voters. Uh, But the black women in the district, uh, I listened very carefully to them. And I started to put their wording back into campaign literature. They would see me, I would talk to them and they say, why not? Why not a woman, you know? And I would put back, I'd do my literature, why not? Why not Mm. a woman, you know, uh, connecting back with them? So we created some new ways of doing things, but that's why it's so important for young people. And, you know, I was talking to the college uh, Democrats and millennials, because you do things, you'll think about it Mm. in different ways. And if we don't have that kind of new thought interjected into the way we do things, we'll become stagnant. You know what I'm saying? So what we're seeing now with millennials and, uh, um, and tweeting and Facebook and all that, that's, that's a new way. Mm-hmm of organizing, a new way of communicating, a new way of having your thoughts, and I tell you sometimes I just go through the tweets and laugh all night long, not at <laughs> my own at other people's. I think, how can anybody be that creative to think of it this way? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think the fact that uh, people are even vulgar, you know, sometimes it's laughable because who would have thought of saying that, you know, in the day, in the way that they're saying it. So Memes can mobilize. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Memes can mobilize. That's right.
0: You've been representing South Central um, Los Angeles for the past 27 mm-hmm. years years you know and i I read in a times piece in 1991 which covered the beating the police beating of Mm -hmm. rodney king and you said it is certainly not an aberration and fast forward to our current day 2017 and we're dealing with some of the same issues does that frustrate you does it surprise you Um, and how do you link that to the or your thoughts around the current black lives matter movement that are largely fueled by the rage and the frustrations of millennials.
1: Yeah, I have come to believe that I would be fighting discrimination and racism and marginalization for the rest of my life. Mm. Uh, Of course, uh, in my early days, Uh, In the California State Legislature, I did confront uh, police abuse, worked very hard to get rid of Darrell Gates, who was a police chief, who Mm. was responsible for the chokehold and for the battering rams and for the tactics that were used to identify uh, and target young blacks, etc. So I lived through a lot of that. But most people don't know about Eula Love was really my first real involvement. She was an African-American woman who was shot down on her porch by the police. She could not afford to pay her gas bill, and they came to turn her gas off. The gas company did. She would not allow them to do that, so they went and got the police. The police came back. She had what amounted to a butter knife, and she wouldn't let them come on her porch, and they shot her down. They killed her, and that really got me involved. Uh, We're dealing with police abuse and organizing uh, the Black Women's Forum uh, to confront these issues, et cetera. And so I'm not frustrated. It just inspires me to work harder. You know, Ferguson is so close to Saint Louis until, you know, I, I got that. I, I kinda knew what was going on there and how these little towns in and out of Saint Louis, you had all of these little police departments and sheriffs, et cetera, who literally would write these tickets and warrants uh would, would would come about because people could not pay their tickets and they ended up going to jail. And it was it's been going on for a long time. And so, um, I think it's very important that the Justice Department got involved in that. And now we have Jeff Sessions, who says he does not believe that's the role of the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. This is one of the first things that he decided that uh, the Justice Department would not interfere with local police departments anymore. That's why it's not only Trump that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about his whole cabinet based on my life's experiences. And so, no, I'm not frustrated. Uh, But I'm determined, and uh, Black Lives Matter is extremely important. What you have with Black Lives Matter is a breaking away from business as usual, Mm. a separation from the politics of getting along and the politics of turning a blind eye. What they did was they confronted the system in ways that it had not really been confronted before, even different from the civil rights movement. And so it was a, a progression of resistance, of police abuse by younger people who were doing it in a different way.
0: And I love the collective nature of it as well, the ways in which, you know, there's not a single leader that's there leading everyone. It's all of us are culpable and accountable to, to each other and ourselves. And I think about the ways in which you were thrust into the spotlight right after you were elected yes. because of the L.A. riots, yes. in a sense, right? When yes. four LAPD yes. officers were acquitted after arresting and beating Rodney King. And yes. you were a re- representative of many people who were rioting, right? Yes. And you became known early on for yes. saying and defending yes. the L.A., on riots by saying that it was a rebellion caused by right. the poverty and the despair that that's existed right. in, right. in the inner city. That's and right. you also argued that the government had abandoned yes. your constituents that's and right. the police and financial that's institutions right. had abused that's black right. folk, right? Absolutely. And you were going up at the time yes. against President Bush, <laughs> yes, who right. believed the riots were purely criminal, that's right? Right. That's um, right? What was it like for you to have a different interpretation of the events than the president? Okay. And how did you advocate for and defend your constituents constituents against this Republican president and his his folk who were just saying they're pure criminals, just causing chaos and destructing um, property?
1: There are certain incidents and occurrences that absolutely stir me and propel me into action. Rodney King was one of them. As I watched from my bed that beating, I sat straight up and I go, oh no, Oh my goodness, I can't believe this. It provided a platform and an opportunity to talk about people who I felt And I described as having been dropped off of America's agenda Mm. and the hopelessness that I had witnessed. Because don't forget, I had been working in public housing projects as a a member of the California State Assembly. Many of them at that time were in my area and in my district. I created programs uh, in those areas I knew and understood what was happening with young black males in particular, joblessness. I understood what happened in the crack cocaine wars that took place, and I saw all of the destruction of all of that, and so when I stepped forward, it was based on what I knew, what I had learned, and what I had experienced, and I had no reticence in doing that. I felt perfectly comfortable to say, oh no, this is not just wild, crazy people rioting. This is a rebellion. This is about hopelessness. This is not about a mother who is no good and a thief and all of that, who happened to pick up a pair of shoes or something during the uh, rebellion. This has to be understood, that this joblessness, uh, this lack of resources this inability to provide a a quality life for your children this is what results so i I was roundly criticized for it and the right-wingers of course you know they said all kinds of things but it didn't bother me as i'm not bothered now uh, by (laughs) those who are opposed to me talking about impeachment when the moment comes i know it I don't have to think about it. I don't have to ask anybody's permission. I'm propelled into action.
0: As I'm writing, as I'm sitting here and yes. I was researching you and yeah, writing yes. these questions, I was thinking about how you've always been <laughs> on the right side of history in this way that i even think thinking about like this, you weren't only defending millennials, right? Like you were defending Gen Xers <laughs> and when hip hop was under attack, that's right. you know, and they were that's saying right. that gangster rap, which was birthed right. from Compton, that's right? right? That's in right. 1994, that's as a social impact of gangster right. rap was yeah. debated on Capitol Hill. That's right. You defended the genre that's and right. you said it would be a foolhardy mistake to single out poets Yes. as a cause of America's that's problems. Right. These that's are right. our children and they've that's invented right. an art form right. to describe their pains, wow, fears and frustrations <laughs> with us as adults. Yes. You just seem to always <laughs> have the right thing to say at the right time when everyone else, your colleagues around you are not they're just like what are you talking about because you know all of the you know, gangster rap was seen as it yes. was like public enemy number yes, 1.
1: That's right. You know, I think in the final analysis I may have, may have been blessed Mm. with a kind of insight, uh, with a kind of love for people that drives me at certain times. I also think I understand a talent that's uh, not appreciated. You have great artists in these communities. I have young people who have drawn pictures, you know, and portraits, you know, and that's amazing. And it's the same thing with rhyming, you know. For a, a young kid who just had the kind of brain that would, you know, allow them to get up without thinking about it, without having to write it down, and just let it come. Well, that's talent. They were talking about uh, police abuse. They were talking about poverty. They were talking about in the rap. All of those things that elected officials should have been paying attention to that our society should have understood and so when they talked about censorship well of course i'm such a first amendment person you know really believe in the constitution i don't care who you're talking about when you're talking about censorship whether you're talking about you know rappers poets or intellectuals or anybody else who step outside of the box and then I just kind of had an appreciation for what I was seeing as developing hip-hop style, it was not just rap, it was clothing, it was style, it was dress, it was the whole culture that was changing and so, you know, I could not help but listen to a Tupac sing about his mother and say, you know, she was a dope thing, but she was my queen, that's moving, and that's not a a wild, careless uh, person that just, you know, trying to think about gangster rap. This is somebody with a brain and, and, and thoughts and feelings, uh, and so, yeah, I defended them, and it was an interesting time, I have to tell you, <laughs> and... Uh, Today, when I look at uh, Queen Latifah and I look at Snoop and I look at them, how they have evolved and how they have created new industries and all, I think I was right. You were right. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that what
0: inspires people so much when they they see you speak or when they just see you, your resistance and resilience against so much pressure and your you're also, you know, being here for 27 years, yeah. you haven't forgotten the people on the ground. No. And I think that no, no, that no, no. speaks yes. to an incredible sense of integrity that makes people want to call you their auntie <laughs> because they want to claim you as their own. They want to claim you as as their own family member who will always be there to show up and who will always throw the right amount of shade. <laughs> oh,
1: that's what Eric said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I just, you know, um, one of your most prominent moments, of course, was with, you know, um, he got fired so I'm happy about that. Bill O'Reilly. Yes. Mm-hmm. When he compared your hairstyle yes. to James Brown, who has yes, a great, sir. great hair. Yes, sir. Um, And mm-hmm. you were asked to respond. And mm-hmm. obviously you had the greatest soundbite in the entire world, which we all know, which is now soundbite history.
1: I'm a strong black woman. And I cannot be intimidated. I cannot be undermined. I cannot be thought uh, to be a friend of Bill O'Reilly, or anybody. And I'd like to say to women out there everywhere, don't allow these right-wing talking heads, these dishonorable people, to intimidate you or scare you, be who you are, do what you do, and let us get on with discussing the real issues of this country.
0: And of course, I got my entire life from that, because as Mm -hmm. a young black woman navigating a lot of like white corporate structures, it was nice to to be reminded that we can speak back yes what would your advice be to young black women specifically at work who are constantly being told that they should be contained that they should be quiet that they should sit in the back and just be grateful to be here
1: well i have a theory that i've developed about many of the millennials who have uh, gone to school, they've gotten educated, they had their sights on a career. Uh, their parents, you know, were supportive and pushed them on and told them, you know, you know, you're going into the corporate world or what have you, you know, dress right, do this and all of that. And they did all those things. And then they got to the water fountain and they discovered that they were seen and perceived quite differently and that there were comments that were made and actions that were taken that were disrespectful uh not appreciative for you know someone who had invested their time and their energy just like some of the other people in the workplace who may not have been african-american etc and so i think this thing about auntie maxine and loving the way that i speak out has to do with I kept quiet. I did everything they told me to do. And look what they did to me. That's right, Auntie Maxie. <laughs> Tell them. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> could, we, think... were all, we were all taught that you know we have
0: to be, work twice That's as hard, right. be That's twice right. as good in That's order right. to get half That's as much. Right. And right. then they're still going to criticize right. us. And That's so like respectability right. politics and That's having right. the right hair and speaking That's the right, right way is not going right. to save us.
1: That's right. And when I spoke out after Bill O'Reilly, I did at that time think, it's important to say, who I am, and to let other black women know that you don't have to back up. You don't have to uh, be a victim of anybody's. And boy, it hit with people saying, oh, my goodness, I am too, Mm -hmm. or I can be. This is what we need to hear. And so it's been rewarding.
0: You spoke it plain. Yes. And you spoke it strong. Yes. That quote will be used to inspire generations, just in the way in which, you know, Shirley Chisholm said yes. unbought. Not, but and un- That's right. That's right.
1: That's <laughs> you know, right. that is
0: the to That's me, right. that is the new unbought and unbossed. Well, to
1: tell you, just before you go into the next thing, I was at the uh, State Democratic Convention this weekend, and there were a bunch of young kids with unbought and unbought on their t-shirts, and I thought Yeah, they know about (laughs) Shirley Chisholm. You know, these are young Mm -hmm. people, but I hope that uh, it does resonate in that way.
0: Well, I think that we're always looking for um, inspiration. We're always looking, uh, at least for me as a millennial, I'm always looking to my elders in the sense of like, we don't have to repeat the wheel. We don't have to reinvent it because people have already done this work. And all we need to do is build upon the work. And that also the sense of, you know, you are active doing this work. You're not just someone sitting on a pedestal somewhere. You are out in the streets with the people and then also bringing the people's pain and people's struggles to the spaces in which you've now have had access to for for so long. And you you are the member of Congress who has spoken out most about the necessity for trump impeachment yes. and yes and what's keeping you hopeful
1: oh i wake up every day hopeful <laughs> i mean this is what keeps me doing what i do i may go to bed a little bit disgusted uh, thinking why don't people see the things the same way i see them you know and i think a lot of people probably think that way uh but when once i get a good night's rest i'm on it again um I was born hopeful. I had to be one of 13 children, you know, in and off of welfare, you know, knowing that you had to compete, you know, for everything and that, you know, your family could not give you uh, what you needed, let alone what you wanted. But I knew that there was a way to get it. And uh, for me, the jobs the working and um, participating in all that is just a way of life. So I'm a very hopeful person. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for doing this with us. It's such a joy. Thank you. My EP, Lena Dunham, is here to give you a hint about next week's guest.
1: Glamorous, breaking open doors for people on network television can both... Uh, manipulate a wig on television and wear a wig on television. Mother, I'm getting bottom surgery. (laughs) You and I talked about that when she's like, I'm doing it. That's next week on Never Before.
0: Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Nowetski, Josh Gwynn, and Liz Watson. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hans Sue. If you like our show and you want the world to hear it, please subscribe and rate it on iTunes. Okay, I know you hear everyone say that at the end of every podcast, but it helps more people find us. So please go do it. me dodging the haters with Maxine that's me dodging the haters with Maxine Waters